Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Morally, it is unfair to expect that businesses wear the cost of COVID restrictions that benefit us all on their own balance sheets themselves. You know, the objective here should be make everyone stay at home, but then make sure that people are not financially worse off and to the best of government's ability. The mechanisms you use are never perfect, but you should be aiming as hard as possible to avoid them being inadequate. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. Now, the economic cost of a lockdown in a major city, such as Sydney, is estimated to be around a billion dollars a week. Lockdowns are crippling the economy especially, and small business communities are taking a disproportionate hit. Look, since the lockdown, I've been getting messages from you every day telling me that government's COVID relief package, that's both government, state and federal, just isn't enough. It's not even gonna put a dent in your utility bill. So if we continue to find ourselves in lockdown, what's our lifeline? What does the future of small businesses post lockdown look like? Because the small business community has been plunged into economic uncertainty, we're looking for answers, a strategy, a way forward, just some form of communication from the government about how we begin to get out of this economic mess. Well, while we're waiting on some of those answers from government, I thought it'd be a good idea to speak to Brendan Coates. He's an economic policy program director at the Grattan Institute, and he's been doing the numbers on this for a long, long time. In fact, since around 2008. So let's get into it. Brendan, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks very much, Mark. So just so everybody understands, um, let's give you some perspective around this. Um, what part of the economics curve are you involved in? So look, at its heart, what economics is about is about trade-offs, you know. So we're trying to weigh the costs and benefits of different policies and trying to find the best way forward. Um, there's no clearer example of that than COVID. Um, I should say in a past life, I was with the Treasury and I was involved in the former uh, exercises where we basically simulated the pandemic and simulated a response. So um, right. exercise sustained in 2008, that was part of my job. Um, but as for the last few years, I've been at Grattan Institute. We've obviously been saying a lot since COVID started about, you know, how we should tackle the pandemic. I've never, I've never been seen a set of policy questions that are more important to the wellbeing of Australians where the calls we're making are as large as the calls that we're making right now. Um, and so Grattan's role in the public debate is to try to inform the discussion about how to make those calls as correctly as possible, basically using the evidence about what we know about, you know, how COVID spreads, what the economic costs are, what the costs are, unlimited spread of COVID would be, and basically trying to find our way through to the other side of this, which is obviously about the vaccines. So but can I just go back to when you said in 2008, you worked in Treasury, which is federal Treasury, I presume you're talking about the federal government's, um, the Department of Treasury is different to working for the treasurer. Um, the Department of Treasury is a part of the bureaucracy of the federal government down in Canberra. You might have been in Sydney, but, you know, it was generally speaking the down in Canberra. There's lots and lots of people there. And uh, your role is to advise the treasurer, inform the treasurer, um, warn the treasurer um, about um, things that might not be working in relation to the currently his economic policy and or trying to help build economic policy for the Treasurer, I should say, for Australia at, at this national level, right? One of the things that you would have done, that you mentioned you did, was you actually looked in 2008 at pandemics. Is that right? That's right. Why were we talking about pandemics back in 2008? I never that's, – that's out there, but yeah. yeah. What, what so we war game, essentially, you know. I think that's an analogy that's being used too much at the moment with the with the military probably more involved in the rollout, rollout of the vaccines and our, our pandemic response than you probably want. Um, 
or at least if you had a the public service was was doing its job better, they probably wouldn't need to be. Uh, but essentially, yeah, we've simulated what happens if you have a pandemic uh, because of SARS that occurred, you know, which is another respiratory virus that circulated in China and Hong Kong elsewhere. Uh, about what you would do, and so we simulated, you know, shutting schools and doing a whole bunch of this stuff and paying people, everyone job seeker or something equivalent. And we, to be honest, we didn't think as much about businesses at the time. I think that was a blind spot. Um, you know, if I think back about that, those exercises, I should say the other thing I did when I was there in 2008 is I helped design the stimulus. So the $950, $900, I was involved in designing some of that. That seemed like a lot of money back then. You know, we were talking about spending $10 million of taxpayers' money in a weekend. That was a lot of money. Now, that seems small compared to what we've done over the course of the last year. But essentially, yeah, we are advising governments. That's the Treasury's role is to advise governments about using our expertise, about what we think is the best way way to solve a problem. They give us directives about, okay, we've taken on your advice. We actually want to do this thing. That's maybe what you said, but maybe a bit different because they've got other objectives, other considerations. And then you help execute. And would it it be fair to say that, when you build these things, are you building the solutions and the management and the solutions around any political outcomes or is it just cold-hearted, let's get the economy back from, you know, back to A? It's, it's a little bit more than that, but what you're thinking about is someone's well-being, right? And so that, like, I know that's a word that doesn't mean a lot in the, in the abstract, but what you're thinking about there is, okay, what income people have, so what, how much, what consumption possibilities they have, like their ability to go out and spend money and enjoy, you know, life, you know, the distribution of those things, you're worried about, you know, people who might find themselves particularly affected by some policies. You know, I think COVID is a classic case where, you know, if you're thinking about small businesses have been hurt harder than almost anyone else. Uh, you're thinking about complexity, about how people are going to interact with the systems that you're putting in place. You're thinking about risk. Now, that's obviously the risk um, that you're placing on individuals with policy. So, for example, you know, if you do a lockdown and you don't provide appropriate financial support, then you're exposing a lot of people to risk that they basically go bust. Uh, but it's also risk around the integrity of systems. You know, you think of JobKeeper and, you know, the fact that, some people made out very well from that that experience. Jerry Harvey is probably the one that comes to mind for a lot of people um, where there's leakage and things like that. And so you're thinking about those things together. And so GDP is obviously one measure of part of that. Like that's a measure of the market economy, how much people are selling, buying goods and services in the economy. But it's obviously not the whole story because, you know, I've got two kids. When I look after them, that's not counted as GDP. That's clearly important. The leisure people have is really important. So you're trying to think of it holistically. Now, trying to do that comprehensively is very hard, as you know, particularly doing it quickly. Um, But that is essentially the problem you're trying to solve in real time, often subject to incomplete information about what's going on, uh, particularly in the economics. Because, for example, I remember when we were designing that um, exercise in 2008, and we were talking about, okay, well, let's think about how we set up the, the economic discussion. And the discussion was, oh, we're in recession. And I was like, no, well, we may be, we may not be. We don't know. Like, it, we don't know how big it is. Because at the time when you're making the decisions, you don't know whether you're in recession or not. And at the time, the US was actually in recession and we didn't know it yet because the data hadn't come out. So you're often doing this with fairly incomplete information about the story. And also with, you know, frankly, imperfect tools. If you're thinking particularly something like COVID, you know, government has gone from trying to stay out of people's lives to a fair degree to all of a sudden it's in your life every single day in all these incredibly invasive ways. And so the tools you're using to try to do that are messy. So that, that's very interesting. So the group in Australia or the sector in Australia that's probably been most interfered with during this period by government policy has been the small business sector because of the lockdown. I mean, that's without any doubt. I mean, they've taken it in the neck, I've said it many times, taken it in the neck more than anybody else in my economic sense I'm talking about um, and probably stress and anxiety added to that. Um, where does Grattan fit into all this? So you work at Grattan now, but what is Grattan? I mean, we keep hearing this thing called Grattan, but what, what is it? Is it government-owned or is it uh, right-wing, left-wing? Who, who the, where does it come from? Look, that's a good story. question. And, Mark, people have different views about what we are, but I'll tell you what we think we are, and um, your listeners can decide what they think we are in their own minds as well, which is, you know, Grattan is a think tank now, which means it's not part of government. Essentially, it was set up with uh, an endowment, so we were given money by the federal government and by the Victorian state government. $15 million each was put into a pot, 
that is now managed by a board that was then appointed by government but had people from both sides of politics. That was kind of the idea was supposed to be nonpartisan. And then with this endowment, we then fund our operations going forward. So, you know, we earn an income off that. We have some founding partners. Like we work at the University of Melbourne because they give us the building for free and the computers and all the rest of it. Uh, but the idea is that we are arm's length from government and from any major sort of interest in the community. So, you know, we're not funded by Qantas or the banks and we're not funded by the union movement and we're not funded by the government. So we are free to say what we think is the right answer to policy questions, irrespective of what the, the pushback might be and, you know, who we might piss off in the process to be blunt about it. And where's Doherty fit into all this? Doherty has been commissioned by the federal government to do work on uh, and basically to do modelling of scenarios of the outcomes would be of a combination of different levels of vaccination coverage. And we've got no relationship with them at all, you know. Right. But you recently worked hand in hand in relation to the way forward. We are working separately. So we had no contact with Doherty. Right. In fact, we, you know, normally we would talk to them about our work. We talked to everyone. Uh, but this was an instance we couldn't because they were being commissioned by the federal government to do work for National Cabinet. And we couldn't talk to them. So basically, you could think of it as the government went down a path of thinking about what's its plan on the way out. Now, before they'd even commissioned Doherty to do that work, we had started work separately, Mark, thinking about, Jesus, we've got to get out of this mess. We can't stay in this world forever. Lockdowns are terrible. Uh, so is uncontrolled spread of COVID. They're both really bad outcomes. We think lockdowns are less worse, less bad than the alternative. But we started that work. We did our own modelling. We talked to all the scientists. We talked to a lot of the experts. And we've come up with a plan that came out before Doherty did their work. Right. Right. So the plans differ. But the government didn't ask you to do that, though, did you? No. You, you voluntarily, so to speak, did that. The government will look at that plan. Because, I mean, I hear... Grattan getting quoted quite a lot, um, both in the media and I, I'm not sure where the politicians have been quoting it. But and I, I know that the prime minister was hanging out for seventy percent, eighty percent, eighty five percent deal that was coming out of Doherty in terms of vaccinations. Um, before you know, he had put us through the various stages of um, his you know road to recovery. Where was Grattan in that process? So we were absent from the government's process. We thought there was a need for a plan and we started the work before um, Doherty came up with that number. Um, and we would, I would say that I don't actually think the Doherty, that Doherty didn't come up with a plan, just to, to be clear. Doherty came up, was commissioned to do work on scenarios by the federal government uh, and National Cabinet came up with a plan um, right. in response to those scenarios. But, you know, what you ask for has a bearing on what you get. And so in that case, they only looked at scenarios when Doherty says 80% vaccine coverage, they're saying 80% of eligible Australians, 16 and over. That's only 65% of the population. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, whereas our work, and we can get into this market, because I think it's worth thinking through in the abstract kind of like what the challenge is, like what are we trying to solve? And then we've got a way that we think we can solve it. And Doherty, well, the National Cabinet has a way that we think we do it. So, and we think there are some problems with the way that National Cabinet is thinking about the problem uh, that's right. going to potentially cause some issues down the track. So, you know, the short answer, if you if you back right back up, it's kind of like, what are we trying to do? It's like we've kind of, before vaccines, we just had bad choices, right? COVID comes along, it sucks. You've kind of got a choice because it spreads exponentially, you know, you hear a lot about this ref number, like the number of people, every person who's infected with COVID, how many people do they then infect? Yep. So effective reproduction number is the one that we tend to talk about, uh, which is sort of one to account for restrictions. And so... You know, in the wild, the original version of COVID probably had a reproduction number of about three, um, which is kind of why you saw exponential spread in like Wuhan, which is why they locked down. And so we were kind of left with this world where it's like, well, you've got this virus that's going to spread exponentially. You've kind of got two options here that we think. One option is you let it spread in, in a completely unconstrained fashion. You don't do anything. And we think COVID spreads through the community. A lot of people die, but a lot of people end up in hospital. You overwhelm your health system and it's a bad outcome and no one has chosen that option. You do have an intermediate option, which is what the Swedes tried to do, which is let's like keep everyone who's vulnerable away, let it run through the rest of the community and, you know, we'll hopefully be able to get back to normal quicker. That ended up not working particularly well, to be honest, partly because you, people worry about the cost of lockdowns, like the economic cost of lockdowns is, and social cost of lockdowns is very severe. But so are the economic social costs of unconstrained spread of COVID. You know, you get almost the same outcome. No one goes anywhere. Everyone stays at home. No one goes to the shops or to the barber or anywhere else. And so yeah, unconstrained spread of, spread of COVID and the Treasury work that's been done recently along with Doherty sort of suggests that they think the economic costs of unconstrained spread of COVID are very bad. And you've got this third option, which is kind of what Grattan's been advocating, which is, well, look, 
you either have lots of COVID or none because that's the nature of exponential growth. You've got one case, then two, then four, then eight, and pretty soon you've got 50,000, then you've got 250,000 and it blows up. So the best thing to do for us is to shut the borders, keep it out, wait for a vaccine, and then sort ourselves out. And that's kind of what we've tried to do. Now, we've done it imperfectly. Quarantine has not been as effective as it should have been because we haven't invested properly in it. And, you know, you went, Victoria had a very long lockdown last year. New South Wales is now having a long lockdown now. But the problem is that you either have no COVID or you have lots of it, and there's not really any in between. And so that's the sort of broad challenge that we have. And when we look at, say, the costs of lockdowns, you've also got to think about the counterfactual. Well, in the world where you let COVID be unconstrained, what does the world look like? And to us, the world looks almost as bad. Well, it looks worse, but the the health costs are way worse. But the economic costs are basically the same, if not worse as well because no one's going to go and shop and live in the community when your hospital's overrun and, you know, lots of people are dying. So then you've kind of got, okay, they're the crap outcomes that we had. And then vaccines come along and they come along far faster than we expected. And then, fantastic, there's a way out. There's a way where we don't have to infect everyone to get to herd immunity or something similar. All of a sudden, you've got vaccines that are safe, they're effective, and the trick is you've just got to vaccinate enough people and you can solve the problem which is kind of where Grattan's work came in because we don't want lockdowns. We don't want to be the hermit kingdom or any of that. And the challenge here is you've got to vaccinate enough Australians in order to not have COVID run like wildfire through the unvaccinated community. Because the problem there is, and this is why we landed on a number of 80%, is it's a one-shot game. Once you let COVID into the community at large numbers, and if you do it too early, then you end up in a bad situation because you get it taking off, your hospitals end up being overloaded and you end up in lockdowns for a long time, which is what we saw in the US, in the UK for extended periods of time. They had a worse, whatever, however much we've impinged upon our freedoms with the strategy Australia has adopted, the US and Europe have had worse economic outcomes and worse health outcomes. We think zero COVID or trying to keep COVID out has been better than the alternatives, but you've got to obviously vaccinate and then get out. And the constraint then becomes... Well, if you vaccinate 60 or 70% of people, which is kind of of the population, what we found is if you then relax the restrictions, which you want a world where you don't have to have restrictions, like no density limits and things like that, the problem ends up being that you've still got 20, 30, 40% of the population that's unvaccinated and the vaccines stop you from dying, very effective at that, but a lot of people still end up in hospital. And what we found is you would basically breach your ICU capacity for three or four months. And as soon as that would happen, government will not let that happen because, you know, you and I might be vaccinated, Mark, but that doesn't help if I have a heart attack and I need an ICU bed and there's not one because everyone's on respirators. And so what we said is, well, you should aim for 80% coverage. Then we know that the risk of that happening is relatively low uh, because it is a one-shot game. The government can get to that 80% vaccine coverage target. You know, Canada's already at 72% now. Um, When people compare COVID or their vaccine targets in Australia to abroad, one thing you've got to remember is that, say in the US, more than 90% of people have antibodies for COVID because 20 plus percent of the population got COVID <laughs> and they had those worth health outcomes. And so if we reopen at the same point they did, then what you'll get is 20% of people getting COVID and it might not be as bad as it was there because people are less at the less risk of dying, particularly if they're vaccinated, but you, we don't have any natural immunity which means we have to aim for a higher vaccine target than what they did to avoid just, you know, deferring all this pain and then ending up in a bad place at the end of the day. Just go back to you on one thing. The public health issue of ICU being overwhelmed, that's a government objective. We wouldn't be too happy, as you say, if I'm having a heart attack and there's no ICU beds available for me to go because they're all being taken up by people who are on a respirator or something along those lines. Does the government ever consider or do you guys ever consider saying, well, maybe not this time around, but next time around, why don't you go and invest in a whole lot more ICU beds? So our modelling, the numbers that we look at, the threshold is there's 4,200 ICU beds in Australia. We say, well, look, we probably want to avoid a situation. If we if we really stretch it, we can get to maybe 7,000. Now, you've got to remember those ICU beds are always full. So Normally. Yeah, normally. because no. we're triaging people. It's not that there's, you go to ICU if you've got a, a heart attack and if you've got a broken arm or something you never go to ICU it's we've got capacity and we've got patients and we grade the patients by how severe their risks are and then we put the most severe in ICU you can increase the capacity in ICU for example by taking an anesthetist and turn them into an ICU nurse so an ICU nurse just sits there with one patient 
all day to make sure they don't die. That's the way ICU works. And the challenge is you could have more ICU full of COVID patients. That's fine. And you can expand it, physically expand it, but you're taking resources away from other places in the health system. And if you're trying to do it for an extended period, it's basically I might go show up with a mild heart attack and I would normally end up in ICU and I won't. And so you'll get people dying who would normally otherwise be okay because they would normally be treated in ICU and they're not. So you can expand capacity, but there are real limits and there are limits to how long you can do it for. If anyone looks at the numbers in the report, you know, if you think that the ICU band that you've kind of got that's okay is You've, you can, you've got ICU capacity of maybe two, maybe with 2,000 is assuming half of all ICU beds are full of COVID patients because COVID patients stay in a respirator or in ICU for two weeks, three weeks. And then if you have, you assume you invest more and you get up to say seven and you assume all of it's ICU for COVID, so there's no ICU for anyone else. On our numbers, if you say open up at 70%, the risk is you end up with 20,000 people not getting ICU at once and that you're, you're above even the top end of that band for a couple of months and what would happen is the government wouldn't allow that to happen so like if you told me and because this is a really hard thing we're weighing really difficult trade-offs here yeah. is if you said we could reopen and you know we 100 and, i think it's 130,000 40,000 people die in australia every year i think that's the number if you said you know 10,000 people will die if we reopen if we had, with the vaccine coverage not being perfect but then we're done it's kind of like it's a hard trade-off to make that you might have to talk about it, but the problem is the ICU capacity gets you there first. It breaches you before you even get there. And so I don't think government would allow that to happen. And instead what happens is you you hit ICU capacity, you go, crap, that's bad. And then you lock down. And then like the Sydney lockdown now, you're in lockdown for six months. So the worry is if you reopen too early, it ends up being a recipe for longer lockdowns, not less. Like we hate lockdowns. We don't want them any more than anyone else. The problem is... If you get if you reopen with vaccination rates too low and allow COVID into the community and living with COVID has got to be the objective, then you end up with a longer lockdown rather than less, and that's in no one's interests. What's the the benchmark that you want to get to, the Grattan thinks we should get to in terms of vaccinations before lockdowns can stop? It's essentially at 80%, you can pretty much confidently everyone or or adults of the population. Oh, kids as well. That's the issue is because kids still transmit COVID. They don't tend right. to get a sick, but they're still a vector for transmission, particularly because they tend to be in these big institutional settings like schools. And so it's like everyone going to the footy every day of the week. Yeah. And we don't think that's a good idea um, if everyone's not vaccinated. And so the risk is for school. So we think you can get to 80% vaccination coverage of the whole population by the end of the year. Now, that does probably depend a bit on a vaccine becoming available for those that are 5 to 12. There's not one that's been approved yet. We expect Pfizer will be approved in the US fairly soon. And then you could conceivably roll that out from November. If you do not get that vaccine, you're probably looking at more like March. March. Let's say we get there by November. So we're all vaccinated. What we, We're going to have Freedom Day like uh, the UK. Is, you know, Boris Johnson or, or Scott Morris going to jump up and down and say it's Freedom Day? Or what happens? So... The actual number you need of vaccinations for no for to not worry about COVID at all is higher than 80. It's probably closer to 85. Yep. We think you can reopen at 80. We think that means you remove border restrictions for vaccinated Australians. So lockdowns are done. Right. Okay. Domestic border restrictions are done at 80. Right. International borders are open for vaccinated Australians to come and go. And you think carefully about how many vaccinated international rivals also come in who are not a citizens. The reason you have to be a little bit careful about that is because if you reopen at 80, what you're basically saying is the, the reproduction number is still above one, but the case numbers start very small. And it's basically a race from that point between your vaccination coverage and COVID to get the reproduction number below one before you start seeing cases jumping. And we think you can easily do that at 80. We do think vaccine passports for domestic activities are going to have to happen. What is a, a vaccine passport and what sort of activities you're talking about? Like going into a cafe? Yes, that's right. So the challenge here is we need the vaccination rate to get up as high as possible. So everything, all this shows that the vaccine rate, getting that up as quickly as possible is an urgent national priority. It's more important than anything else we could do in the universe. We could throw inordinate amounts of money at that problem and it would be worth doing because we know how costly lockdowns are and lockdowns become far less likely the more the vaccine coverage is up. Like with Sydney being locked down now, if, if the vaccine rate was 60, 70%, maybe not, right? Maybe contact tracing and a few limited lockdowns would have got you out of the way and you'd be done. And so what that means is and if you don't get the vaccine coverage up 
we're engaging this incredibly coercive thing. We're forcing people to stay in their homes. Businesses can't open. That's incredibly coercive. Mm. So if the alternative is that you need to sharpen people's incentives, as you say, well, you can only go to the footy or go to a restaurant or a bar if you're vaccinated, is a trade-off that I would take. Whereas I normally would not take that trade-off for any other vaccine. No other disease is going to shut down the entire society for months on end. And it also has one other benefit, which is you're stopping the spread of COVID when you're at that 80% number before you get to say 85, which is what you really need to get to before you can be not worried about COVID at all ever again. It, it prevents you getting super spreading events in like going to the football and things like that. So when you say never worried about it again, um, we would worry about it in the 15% unvaccinated though. I mean, we're not going to eliminate it. No, and so people will die. You know, on yeah. our numbers, um, you know, you're looking at potentially 3,000 people die uh, once you reopen. You know, this right. is not cost. This is not a zero COVID strategy forever. Yep. Like right now, it makes sense to us to say to keep COVID out of the country. That allows yep. us to live life as closely to a normal as possible. You look at Perth. WA has basically is the poster child for a zero COVID strategy and it's worked. You know, they have had a couple of weeks of lockdown over the course of a year and a half. That is the best outcome of anywhere in the world. Yeah, and they're hanging on to that. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to get my head around this. Like, let's say I'm a, a cafe and a restaurant. So if we get to that that number, the magical number, and uh, cafes and restaurants, you know, can reopen, um, what we what you're sort of saying is that 15% of their customer base or 20% of their customer base won't be allowed in. That's right. There so will be you, a vaccine passport that the federal government will have produced, which they're yeah. already doing now through MyGov, or right. to show that you cannot medically be vaccinated because... But what happens to those people? They're allowed in? Yeah, the people who can't be medically vaccinated. So I think the they're good example is often, you know, for a lot of vaccinations, it's people with Down syndrome. Yep. Um, you know, you, you can't discriminate. You can't put a restriction. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Friction on someone where they can never get around it. Right. Right. Like I think that that would be an impost on freedoms that I think you, you wouldn't want to take. Right. Yeah. So that that's interesting. So I guess those the that vaccine passport, it's not just gonna be cafes, it's gonna be walking into the office. I mean, because I got asked this morning when I was on Sky, um, you know, would I as a proprietor say to my staff, you can't work here any um, you know, post October unless you're vaccinated? Are you proposing the government's mandate that? So for certain sectors, uh, where basically people can't protect themselves. So the the question here is always, do I, as the person who's who's in, engaging in that sector, can I be protected? And, you know, if you're an older person, even if you are vaccinated, you are at risk of catching COVID, particularly if there's a lot of it around, because there are breakthrough infections. So people who are vaccinated can still transmit the virus, just not as aggressively as uh, they would if they weren't vaccinated. So areas like aged care, you know, in, hosp- in hospitals, we require you often to be vaccinated to work in hospitals, Right. In aged care, the government is now going to mandate that for aged care. You know, there are other settings, disability care, home-based aged care. You know, my granddad is 91. He has a one in 10 chance of dying from COVID if he gets it. And he's in an aged care facility. So it seems reasonable to me that you should be able to require people to have that vaccine if they want to work in that sector. Now, you're not forcing them to have the vaccine because they have other options. If they want to work in another part of the economy, they can you know, you don't have a constitutionally, you know, a constitutional right to work in whatever job you want. There's always requirements. And so we would be, for, for those things, we would say government can do it. I suspect you will see a lot of employers will do it. SPC has now done it in Shepparton uh, for the canning factories. Um, and I suspect they're the first of many. Right. Okay. It's more like a, a reward. You get to keep your job or you get to go into a cafe or whatever the hell that is um, if you've got the vaccine. It's, and I noticed in your report, you even talked about the introduction of lotteries. 
That's right. So we're recommending Bax Lotto, you know, $10 million a week starting on Melbourne Cup Day. We are a Victorian a Melbourne-based organisation, so excuse the bias there. Um, I'm not sure what the equivalent race is in Sydney, but you could do the same thing. It's yeah. been used abroad, and the idea yeah. is basically you're giving people who are, you know, if you're getting vaccinated, you're protecting yourself, but you're also protecting your community because you're stopping the risk of it spreading. And this is a way of rewarding people that if you've been vaccinated, like the community, you get the chance to win money to come back. Labor has obviously recommended uh, or pushed for these $300 payments. I think that's a good idea, to be honest, um, because you know, anything that's going to get the vaccine coverage up, if it's effective, and $300 payments, I suspect, would be effective, is worth doing. The, the payoff is so large because the alternative, if you if you have the vaccine rollout be slower, you know, if you're in Sydney, you know this better than anyone, if your listeners in Sydney, um, that, you know, not being vaccinated has huge costs because you're in lockdown. Victoria is back in lockdown today, um, which is unfortunate. We only just got out of the last one by a couple of days. If it's, the vaccine rollout takes two to three months longer, there's a good chance, particularly with Delta, you're in lockdown for a good chunk of that time. Well, can I ask you a question, Brendan? Like, let's say, let's assume you are uh, double, you, you know, you're fully vaccinated. Why doesn't the Victorian government, for example, now uh, say, look, if you got your vaccine passport, you're not in lockdown? I now. think the problem is basically, Mark, is while the it's that second purpose of vaccines, which is to stop the spread. I don't think that's a good idea because until you get to the level of vaccine coverage where you're not worried about COVID being in the community, you want zero COVID in the community. There's no in-between. You know, I think everyone likes to hope there's some in-between, but there's really, in most cases, there's not. And so what you want, even New South Wales before, before this lockdown was aiming for essentially zero cases. They were just doing it with more lighter restrictions for longer than Victoria and WA did by slapping it on the head the issue here is if you allow people to be exempt from the restrictions then you're increasing the reproduction number um, which means it makes it harder to, to for lockdowns will be longer you, you you shouldn't compromise the tool that's going to do the job for you until you get the vaccine coverage up you should instead overlay a different set of incentives financial vaccine domestic passports for, for going about and living life when we're reopen but you don't want to link that to the being able to get around the restrictions because if you be, make the people who are vaccinated get around the restrictions, you'll just see COVID spread more and we'll be in lockdowns for longer. Let's talk about small businesses for a moment. Small businesses, at least in New South Wales, and I, I'm 100% sure this is the case, same in Victoria and everywhere in Australia for that matter, have been inordinately um, affected by these lockdowns. And the assumption in the lockdown is that small businesses can weather the storm. The assumption, therefore, must be that small businesses have enough savings to be able to operate without any income, but still with some expenses. Apart from the fact that um, administratively it's very difficult in New South Wales for us, for small business owners to get the money that's and or actually lodge your application and or get it processed, let alone get the money, it's a big lead time. In fact, a whole lot of people are telling me that I haven't received any money at this stage. What do you think of the grants, etc., that have been offered in this uh, period? by both federal and state in New South Wales to small business owners? So, Mark, you know, the objective here is we want to stay people to stay home and we have to pay them to stay home. And that's not just wage earners, that's businesses. And businesses have got more risk because you've got thin margins and big costs coming out the other side. At the moment, I think we're doing nowhere near enough. Morally, it is unfair to expect that businesses wear the cost of COVID restrictions that benefit us all on their own balance sheets themselves. Correct. correct. You know, the objective here should be make everyone stay at home but then make sure that people are not financially worse off and to the best of government's ability. You know, governments, the mechanisms you use are never perfect, but you should be aiming as hard as possible to avoid them being inadequate. And particularly now, we know that a one-week lockdown is a lot less costly. That six one-week lockdowns is less costly than one six-week one lockdown because yep. people's uh, spending doesn't adjust. If I'm, I need to go to the bike store, if you leave it for a week or I want to go to a restaurant, you leave it for a week, I'll go back the next week. But if you leave it for six weeks... We'll just never spend the money. And what we've got at the moment is, you know, in my mind, getting better, but still not there. So the disaster payment for workers is uh, $750 a week now is, is pretty good. That's kind of what we have yeah. with JobKeeper. We're back to that world. It's the business side that it still looks to be inadequate to me. Because, yeah. you know, you're taking these big risks. You just happen to, I've got friends who run gyms. You know, they're the first to close and the last to reopen after every lockdown. You know, for me, it's a one week long lockdown. For them, it's three weeks. When they're a month apart, that's a disaster in Victoria. And so... You're expecting people to wear that cost on their own balance sheets, and I think that is unfair. We've got the job saver payment for business in New South Wales. So if your turnover has fallen by 30% um, or more, then you can get cash flow equal to 40% of your payroll. That number should be a lot higher than 40. It should be at least 70. 
80. Uh, because in a lot of cases, you're still either you're still paying your workers uh, or you've got a whole bunch of other costs. So you've got rent is the big one, that which seems to be really unaddressed by this particular set of arrangements that are in place now. We knew this was a possibility. I'm, it's, a, it's a real shame that government, this is probably more the feds in this instance because they do have the pocketbook, didn't have a strategy in place to deal with this earlier on in, in the process. So if you're getting 40% of your prior payroll, you know, that's leaving a lot of businesses with a lot of costs on their labor side. It's also leaving them with a lot, unless they fire their workers. And if they fire their workers, they don't get the 40% payroll. You're requiring people to, to keep the workers on, but you're not, you're only giving them 40% of their, their costs. They're not doing much in the way of rents. The tenant, and also because often a lot of businesses are also landlords, and it's there's no moral reason why the landlord should wear the costs any more than the tenant if you just happen to be in a business that can't run because of lockdown. Um, so what I probably would have done is said, okay, the tenant and the landlord, they come together. Whatever you write off of the rent, the government, a whole chunk, the state government, sorry, pays a whole bunch chunk of that, say 50% of it, 70%. Whatever you write off, government's going to wear a lot of that because we're socialising the costs amongst the community. And if you're worried about the long-term budgetary costs of that, you say, well, we're going to share that cost across all landlords by raising the rate of land tax for a couple of years to pay it back and say, rather than just one landlord wearing the cost because they happen to rent to a gym, you're going to make all landlords pay the costs because you know we're socialising the costs. As the principle here is insurance. There's obviously also those business grants, uh, which are what seven and a half thousand to fifteen thousand dollars as a one-off that includes for sole traders. The challenge here, of course, is that we're now a lot further along the path than that. So I right. look at the, the size of the benefits, particularly for businesses, and they appear to be inadequate for me, given the duration of the lockdown that we are looking at, because we are we're looking for at least another few weeks before we get out of this, it's going to end up being longer than the Victorian one, I suspect. And in that world, you, there is no regrets in paying businesses to stay solvent through this period when through no fault of their own, they're having to take one on the chin for the community. I think that's right. I mean, that's, by the way, the sort of the sentiment that's been coming through to me on all my messaging from various people coming to me, like literally every day, 24 hours a day. Um, why should I take one on the chin for everybody? I'm happy to do it, but someone's got to compensate me for it. And when they say we'll give you ten thousand or fifteen thousand or seven and a half thousand dollars upfront grant, which might have worked if it was a week of lockdown or two weeks of lockdown, um, a lot of these businesses, you know, they make ten thousand dollars a week. Yeah, um, you know, like, so that's their profit. Um, and by because they've invested maybe five million dollars to buy the business. Um, which they're paying interest to the bank on that $5 million or they took that, they could have put that $5 million somewhere else when they bought that business and they may have very few employees. So it's not enough just to say, look, we, the government will make sure the employees are well looked after by giving you a, a rebate of your of, of 40%, um, assuming that your revenue is down by 30%, um, you know, which by the way in itself is not very um, uh, scientific because a lot of these, some of these businesses weren't even around a year ago. Um, you know, so you got no, you got no comparison point. You know, that it's it's sort of a, it's a bit of a, a blunt instrument. Some of these people's value of their business is not just the money they get this week versus next month and what they've always been earning, or either just in gross sales or net profits, but it's also the value of the business going for the future. Why should a business owner whose goodwill in his hotel, the accommodation hotel he might own in Sydney, which was a million dollars pre-COVID? Today be nothing because he has open and close, open and close, open and close, and nobody will come and pay me a million dollars anymore for his accommodation business. What does Grattan think about the compensation for people in the devaluation of their hotel business, I'm talking about accommodation business, or their um, travel agency? These things don't even exist anymore, and they were valuable things, things you could sell before. Yeah, so it's a, it is a tricky one, Mark, because, you know, we, if we think about, what people are getting when they when they invest is they're getting a return and part of that is compensation for risk, right? You know, so risk has got to be part of Yeah, but when we assess risk at the time we bought it, you never make the assumption that the government's going to come and close everybody down and no one can never come to my place. That's a risk. It's it's not a risk. It's a it's a mere possibility. It's not even sort of in the probability sense. No, that's right. So you're thinking about what's the value of that business. Should government be providing Compensation for lost equity is basically yeah. the, the, the question yeah. you're asking. I haven't given that one as much thought. My instinct is probably I'm I'm probably a bit less sympathetic than when it comes to making sure the business doesn't, the balance sheet's not eroded, on like the cash flow balance sheet's not eroded during lockdowns and, and afterwards. Some of the changes we're talking about here will also be, you know, they're going to be long-lasting. Like if you invested in a in a travel business, 
I like my, I feel for you because we're not going to, things aren't going to be normal for at least a while. So it's kind of like, where's the line drawn? And I'm speaking very openly here because I know that this is going to be very emotive for your audience because we're, you're talking about people's livelihoods, you know? Mm. And so I want to say up front that I take that very seriously. You know, if I, if I invest in, I think you do have to distinguish to a degree between the impact of the lockdown itself and the impact of uh, an event that it's occurred in the world, as in the emergence of a coronavirus that is going to have reshaped the global economy for five years. Like we didn't compensate everyone for the GFC, even though, you know, no one's busy. We did the banks. Yeah, no, I know we did. Um, but- big, big time. You know why? Because they took the view that the banks are an important part of the economy and uh, we can't afford to have a banking system that is in any way, shape or form uh, put at risk. But my point here is the small business community, which, uh, you know, employs 60% of the population, is an important part of the economy and I don't think we should be putting them at risk either. Therefore, and I would say there would be a large percentage of businesses whose goodwill is not just travel agents, whose businesses have been negatively affected in terms of their value. So I'm saying to you, Brendan, that economically I think the small business sector, or at least this should be examined, is just as important as our banks were when the government looked at uh, rescuing the banks by guaranteeing the deposits that they took from consumers so the consumers could feel safe. So in a perfect world, what you've got would be you would be looking after the balance sheets of firms through this whole thing in a way that we have tried to do but have done imperfectly, right? Like I think we'd all probably agree with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the world I would think of, you would say on the other side of it, it's like, well, look, COVID's done. We're kind of getting back to normal. We expect you to stand on your own two feet, right? Like that would be the way I would think of it. Because in that world, if we're past COVID, things should be looking a lot rosier for the business than they are. Now, that's not going to be true for everyone, right? There's going to be businesses that are hurt by this and they're going to be hurt permanently. I think it's just a, it's a really interesting question that I'll give more thought to. So I'm just giving you my thoughts off my head, off the top of the head about how to think about that. You've kind of got this challenge between you want, there are some things that are changes from COVID that will be permanent, right? So the size of the international tourist market, I suspect, will be smaller for a reasonable amount of time than what it was before COVID. The size of the international student market in Australia will probably be smaller. <laughs> to what extent is it government's job to preserve the existing status quo versus to what extent we should allow the economy to adjust to those things are, are, are hard questions. And so I think you, I, I always get nervous about the idea of government sort of compensating people's equity for risks that have been taken. Now you can make the argument as you have that this is almost like a force majeure kind of event that it's so it's an act of God that's just come across this. Um, but I think there are, there are diff- all I would say is there are difficult trade-offs that you have to think through. It's probably not as straightforward as just saying, well, everyone who got burnt, do we collectively make everyone whole again for the equity, their equity they've got in their business when they've also enjoyed the returns to risks that come from that business over time? It's not an easy question to answer. Well, maybe one way around is you say that um, if somehow you can prove that there has been a, a diminution in your value of your business, that on the day you retire, you know, those people might get a little bit more pension or something. I don't know. But look, I think there'd be very few retail businesses in this country today that aren't affected. The value of the business is not affected and they may never recover that position again. I, I just think it's unfair. And by the way, when it comes to the risk, if, see, you're looking at it from the lens of Brendan, who in 2008 was looking at the possibility of um, pandemic. We have never had that shared with us. You, you knew that these are possibilities. We, we the normal person, the average person, um, we don't know these things are being considered as potentially something could happen to our country. Therefore, we don't put that into the, into the risk category. If I had to put that in the risk category, I might have paid a different price, but I might not have got that um, asset because no one else, someone else would have been prepared to pay a higher price. So... Therefore, it's a, it's, it's a very imperfect market because, because of knowledge. And I think you're attributing, and I, and, I, and I accept this, and it'd be great if you guys could think about this, Grattan could think about this, but I think you've got to be careful that you don't attribute your knowledge in terms of risk to the average person in, a, in the Australian economy um, as to whether or not we have been fairly or unfairly treated as a result of the sacrifices that each one of us has made in relation to keeping the public health system, that's all our friends and all our families, um, in the best possible position or optimal possible position. That's the big issue. 
people feel as though not only they're not getting paid enough, but they um, helped out enough during this crisis because it's gone longer than they expected, particularly in New South Wales. But they feel as though that the thing they've worked for their whole life, they pay their tax on every dollar they've ever earned. This is the thing they're going to retire. Most people don't have super. They're not employees. They don't have superannuation tucked away. This is their superannuation. It's now worth half, less. Now, Mark, I hear you. So I do want to just say I want to disabuse you of the notion that I had any insider knowledge. My investment portfolio did not adjust no, 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 in, in February 2020. No, no, I, I look back and I go, Jesus, I probably should have thought about that, but I honestly did not. Um, um, but I was – so, look, I hear what you're saying. Like in, small business owners take on a lot of risks in what they do and – they don't have the same kind of insurance that other people have in their lives. So for me, COVID has been about, well, I couldn't send my kids to childcare for a while. That was pretty hard, particularly when we were working pretty hard on COVID work. My demand for my work went up, as you can imagine, you know, but my income has otherwise been fairly secure. Now, some people look at that and go, well, you know, you're saying we should be locked down. Your income should be just as at risk as mine. And I think, no, that's the wrong way to think about it. Small business owners' income should be, as at less risk as what mine is during this period. You should give people insurance against the costs, against the risk that we're making them incur, rather than saying we should strip insurance away from the people who are lucky enough to have it. Because we know economic, the economics of insurance are pretty clear. Everyone wins if we insure everyone in that way. Um, so, look, I will give it more thought. Um, at- Maybe we can revisit this because um, it would be great if, say, someone like Grattan um, had a little subgroup and I'd be very happy to participate in it. But, like, there are so many people who feel as though, and I may, I probably haven't done it justice here, by the way, but I feel as though their superannuation has just been completely eroded. And if I said to the government, oh, listen, by the way, your super fund, you know, the, the money that, um, you know, you've been putting aside for all your public servants, and if all of a sudden that I, we need you to take a hit on that of uh, 20%, um, in the terms of economic policy, that's not a good thing for the government because I think that means that people may not have enough to retire, which means they're going to rely more heavily on the government purse when they turn 65, 70, whatever the case may be. Well, it's a, it's a difficult economic policy to, to work with. Well, there's, you know, a couple of million people in this country um, whose superannuation is definitely, well, right now is affected. Whether or not they can work back and build it back up to where it was, I don't know the answer to that. But I think it's worth considering. I know it sounds like it's a bit out there, a bit esoteric. What is the roadmap? And maybe I'm not looking, you know, these people are looking for a handout. Um, I don't know what they're looking for, but it may not be a handout. It might be something else. There could be some recommendations around this. Who knows? Yeah, you could certainly, Mark, look at something like, you know, there's been proposals out there to say we should give people money, um, but... And as almost like an income contingent loan, like if you recover, then you pay it back, you know, yeah. like the, what you yeah. do with the hex. Yeah. If you don't recover, then you don't. You yeah. know, those those ideas are worth thinking about. Like Totally. It's it's a case here where I often think inaction is conservative and, appro- and prudent, and in this case, inaction is actually imprudent. Yeah, I agree. In the say, it's the same status quo bias that we've applied to COVID. You know, and we other countries were very slow to get on top of it. We, we got on top of it quickly, and I think, Grattan had a fair bit to do with us doing that. Um, it's the same in action about the size of the economic support packages. You know, if people think that if you if you don't you don't spend money, you're being prudent. No, in this instance, you are causing more harm if you don't spend money. I do, Correct. Mark, want to just say something about the national plan, if that's um, yeah. if that's of value, because we talked about Grattan's plan, but not our own, not the government's one, which is the government's one that actually matters. I think the risk there is there's a bit of an inconsistency, and in they're saying. National Cabinet saying once we get to 70% um, and then 80% coverage, we can really relax restrictions. I think the issue there is they're basically saying when you get to 80% of eligible Australians, which is 16 and over, right, that's only 65% of the population. What what is happening when they hit that 65% of the population is they go back to what they call baseline restrictions, which still involves, you know, restrictions on two person every two square metres. Like There's still density restrictions there. What the government hasn't actually modelled or, or asked the question of is what level of vaccine coverage will you need for all of this stuff to go away completely? They've asked what level of vaccine coverage will you need to basically begin relaxing restrictions but not to be at the end of the process. And I think the risk there is twofold. One is if you start relaxing restrictions early, as we talked about before, it's a one-shot game and if you get exponential spread, you can end up in a very bad place like New South Wales is now. The risk is that you end up with longer lockdowns. If if it gets out of hand at 65%, it could still end badly and I think that's risky because we're dealing with uncertainty and I should have said this earlier is 
all of our modeling, just like Doherty and everyone else, you know, what modeling is, it's not like a black box that just tells you the answer. It's, it's just a, a coordinated, considered way of thinking through the various scenarios and the various things that you don't, that you're not certain about and how ma mapping those together and working out what the range of outcomes are. And so, you know, depending on what the reproduction number is for Delta, if it's four or five or six, so, you know, four people for everyone that's infected or five or six in a world where there's no restrictions makes a huge difference to whether you can reopen at 50 or 60 or 70. If Delta hadn't have come along, we probably would have said you hit 70 or 60% vaccination coverage and we're done. But Delta's twice as infectious. And that's the problem is that Delta's actually changed the game on this in a way that's really, really unhelpful. One final question for you. The way a virus operates, as I understand it, is that it tries to survive no matter what. Like our small business owners, we're all trying to survive. So if it's too virulent, it realises it might kill people and it starts to um, evolve into where we are now, Delta. What happens if we get Lambda comes out or another variant comes out? It starts all over again. Well, then, Mark, I think we're in a world where, you know, the choices become – choices are less good than we have now. Now, if that happens, then there may be a, a level – and it becomes more virulent, the reproduction number goes up again, then maybe you're in a world where, like, well, you need 98% of people to be vaccinated to avoid it spreading. Now – that could happen. We don't know. So what's your best defense against that now? Get the vaccination rate up as high as possible because on our, in our world where you hit 80 plus, we can probably adapt to that variant quite quickly. We can say, well, we've got to vaccinate the last 10% quickly and you can do that in a month. If you were very open that 55 or 65% of the population being vaccinated, which is those targets for 70 or 80% of eligible people, you've got a much bigger task. So you should think of the vaccine coverage as like insurance. It protects us against the risk that things go bad because it gives us more options. It means that if we're in a world where we have to have lockdowns or other measures again, they're less onerous than they would be if the vaccine coverage is 20 percentage points low. Because if we had 60% vaccine coverage now, my guess is New South Wales is not in lockdown right now. And that, as anyone who's in that state knows, would mean everything. That's the difference between life being normal and being pretty hard right now. And that's where it is. And I'm going to leave it off there, Brendan. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate your time, your explanations and your insights um, and your sh sharing those insights with our audience because uh, it's a very confusing, difficult time for everybody. And you've been able to distill a lot of really good, important information to us and explanation. What you've done is help us understand the way governments are thinking. I mean, overarching all this sort of stuff is politics, which is not your game. And maybe the politics are determining some of these things that your the Grattan is not necessarily agreeing with. You know, Grattan might be saying 80, 85. Governments might be saying 70, 80 of the adult population as opposed to the whole population. And that could be a political outcome, a political decision. Because you know, at the end of the day, there's an election coming up sometime next year and um, there has to be progress. And um, it could go the wrong way too, by the way. I think that's right. I think you're 100% on the money, Mark. I think that is yeah. genuinely what's going on. And as the message that I give you and your listeners is there are risks associated with what the government's doing and those risks can be avoided if we aim higher. Brandon, thanks very much for your time and thanks for the uh, insights that the Grattan is doing. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. 